New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. My guest is Adam Crabtree, a psychotherapist based in Toronto, Canada. He is the author of The Land of Hypnagogia, a new book in which he explores extensively the relationship between Nietzsche's thought and his own development as a theorist. His other books include Evolutionary Love, Memoir of a Trance Therapist, From Mesmer to Freud, Trance Zero, Multiple Man, and he's also put together an extremely extensive bibliography on animal magnetism, early hypnotism, and psychical research. Of course, in this day of the pandemic, this is an internet interview, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Adam. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you also, Jeffrey. We'll be talking about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. You have already explained to me that you consider him possibly, uh, if I understood you correctly, the greatest philosopher uh, of all time. I do consider him the greatest philosopher of all times. Um, and for the reason that he seemed to finally be able to uncover the flaw behind almost all human philosophy that really has existed from as far back as we know. And that is that it, it was a, it was involved in a kind of cover-up or keeping us from really completely developing ourselves as human beings to our full potentials and exploring all the things that we don't know freely and without inhibitions of any kinds. That's a tremendous uh, accomplishment and, and very difficult to do, and he hasn't been much thanked for it, I can tell you that. Of course, Socrates, I think, was famous for saying, know thyself, but the implication of what you just said is that a lot of philosophy that uh, encourages self-knowledge and uh, particularly uh, metaphysical neoplatonic philosophies that talk about higher uh, realms of human consciousness, at the same time, they are subverting their own message. It, it seems to be what you're saying. I am, because really... Nietzsche was talking about is that it's best expressed by the notion of depth. Depth. The depth, we need to turn inward and downward into our depths if we're going to really find out about not only about ourselves, but about the very nature of reality itself. And so much of philosophy had wanted to raise the uh, mind or the inclination to explore up into the heavens, into the ideal, in, in that direction, and we can't get anywhere that way. And as a matter of fact, we, the reason there's such emphasis on that is that it creates a kind of morality 
which takes many specific forms, but a kind of morality that discourages exploration, a kind of morality that controls the mind and keeps uh, it from really valuing itself, keeping us from valuing ourselves as human beings, but also as the great explorers of reality. The way of looking at things in past philosophies, past religions particularly, other institutions, has been to see the human being as something sort of humble, looking up to someone who will save them, who will give them knowledge, who will give them understanding. And that's really not the way it is. And Nietzsche saw that. And it's very difficult to give that up because this means taking chances. It means looking at life, looking at exploration as being very open-ended and how many of us are really ready to see reality as so open-ended. You know, um, I thought when you, when we were going to have this interview, when we talked about setting that up, I um, there's this one quote that came to me from Nietzsche, and I wonder if you'd mind if I just give you that quote to begin with that kind of set the stage. I'd be very happy for you to do that. He talks about the hermit, and by the hermit, Nietzsche means the person who has spent enough time alone to be uh, pretty well free of their self-delusions and their illusions about reality. And he says this, he says, the hermit does not believe that a philosopher, assuming that a philosopher has always first been a hermit, has ever expressed his real and final opinions in his books. In fact, he will have doubts whether a philosopher could generally have real and final opinions. Whether in his case, behind, behind every cave, there does not still lie and must lie an even deeper cavern, and more comprehensive, stranger, deeper cavern, a more comprehensive, stranger, richer world beyond the surface, an abyss behind every ground, under every so-called foundation. Now, that undercuts a lot of things. And you can see this does not fit in very well with people who are more politically or socially concerned to try to create order and prosperity. And that comes, by the way, from his wonderful book called Beyond Good and Evil. I remember uh, reading that book as, when I was in my early 20s. Uh, it had a big influence on me, as well as the, uh, the genealogy of morals. Uh, in your case, Adam, I'm under the impression that uh, your exposure to Nietzsche was instrumental in uh, you actually uh, leaving the uh, Catholic Church, or at least that part of the church that, in which you were preparing for the priesthood. I came across him, it is true, before I left the Catholic uh, faith and the practice of uh, priesthood. I came across him briefly when I was in graduate school, but it, and I was very struck by him, but it took me a long time to come back to him. 
and to realize what he really was. I'm under the impression that uh, really most of the major movements in contemporary European philosophy can be traced back to him, existentialism, phenomenology, uh, and yet uh, he himself wasn't really technically a philosopher by training. No, well, he was a philologist by training, and he became a philosopher because of his interest in trying to understand reality. Um, and partly through music, interestingly enough, and Wagner, who was his friend for a while. Um, but he was a, such a strange, unusual mind. You know, one of the amazing things about him is that he was a creature of his own culture, of his own time, of, of the part of Germany that he grew up in. He was, you know, he was very much tied to a lot of the practices and, and cultural demands and so forth. He wasn't free of all that. And yet, yet, when he wrote, that wasn't the case. When he wrote, he cut, cut through everything. All hypocrisy, all pretense. And it was merciless in regard to those things that have kept us hidebound because of that. Now, a moment ago, you indicated that his philosophy doesn't lend itself to building a stable, peaceful, prosperous society. It doesn't support institutions. Uh, it, it seems subversive in, in the sense that he, he wants to question everything. He wants to question everything, but he was not a revolutionary. One could not uh, use him as an example of someone who tried to get societies to, to change. Um, but he was merciless with regard to what society was doing. And he was really building a philosophy for the future. It wasn't for the present. He talked about the philosophy to come would be a philosophy of free spirits. And they weren't quite here yet. It's like he could sense their coming. He could almost see them coming in the distance, but they were not quite here yet. Like, we're not ready for that yet. So he wasn't a revolutionary in terms of an activist at all, uh, but he was definitely a revolutionary in terms of his vision, without any question. As I recall, in Beyond Good and Evil, he, he discusses Christian morality, uh, uh, the idea of gentleness and compassion, and, and he describes it as kind of a slave morality that uh, uh, if a person is in touch with their nature, they're going to be strong, courageous, and fearless. They're not going to be weak in any sense. And I think he saw Christian morality as, as somehow for weaklings. He did. He thought that Christian morality is one of the worst things that happened to the human race. That it did emphasize the weakness, emphasize the helplessness, and not at all empower people to to respect what they might be able to do and what the future could actually be. <clears throat> and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, I write about this in the second book of, of the Land of Hypnagogia, about my experience with the Catholic Church. And I see that. I was a part of that Christian morality. I was a priest, Catholic priest, and I was a Benedictine monk. And I, in looking back, I see the tremendous hypocrisy and the tremendous harm done. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, but when I was seven years old, that's when you do your first 
examination of conscience and go to confession and go to communion for the first time. And you, the first thing that you learn about the world and, and people and interactions with people is about sin. It's about sin and how you are sinning. And to find out all those things and humbly humble yourself in the face of the church and ask for forgiveness. And for seven-year-old kids to have this kind of an attitude created about themselves, that they're that they're sinners and that they're on the verge of going to hell if they make the wrong move, this is cruelty, utter cruelty. And, and I felt such torture as a seven-year-old when I was learning these things. And the whole business of the repression and rejection, basically, of sexuality, of natural sexuality, and the dominance of the male, all of these things so prominent in the church. And it's amazing that people can still think, think of the church as basically this benevolent, loving force in society, when in fact it isn't, and it never has been. If there is anything that has emanated from the Catholic Church that is of that kind, it wasn't through the institution of the Church. It was through some of the people within it who got the spirit that Jesus talked about and, and that other, others who followed him talked about. And were actually able to do something with that and practice it. But the institution, and Nietzsche knew about institutions, how deadly they are, and how awful uh, crum how they crumble the human spirit. He uh, may be most famous for writing about uh, what he called the Ebermensch, uh, or the Superman. The idea that, uh, well, that you could probably express it uh, in, in a better way than I can as a parapsychologist. I'm inclined to think that he was hinting at, at the psychic abilities that are latent within all of us, but I'm sure he, he meant many other things besides that. I think that that would probably be included as a minor part of it, but the major part of it was the power, learning the power of creating, of making something come into being in the world that was not there before. That's the Ubermensch, who had that sense that he or she could do that, and that there was no limit on that, and that the, they were not bound by any morality about what that should be. That if you're going to be creative, if you're, if you're going to make things come into being for the first time in this universe, that you had to follow certain rules and, and a certain morality of how to see things. No. He said that this is not the case. The Ubermensch has no rules and simply acts from his own power and respects that power. And the interesting thing is that with Nietzsche, that does not in any way mean tyranny. It does not in any way mean sadistic actions. It doesn't mean destruction. But it means taking one's power. And sometimes that can appear to be cruel to others. I seem to recall in, in some places, 
and I myself am a conscientious objector and a pacifist, and I have the impression that Nietzsche uh, didn't like uh, pacifism at all. He seemed to feel that uh, if you want to create and you have to fight people to to have your creation, if people are in opposition to you, uh, then it's good to go to war in order to overcome that opposition. Um, you might be right about that. There's some things I don't know about his politics and his practices in, in, in on that score. Um, I think that he he certainly didn't talk about or or I mean he was part of the military when he was growing up. Everybody was in Germany at the time, and and it was important for him that his country was successful militarily and so forth. That is true, um, but I don't know how much that was attached to his notion of the Ubermensch or the will to power. I think that he got that sense more from just experiences with tremendous force of energy being exercised in various ways. Like, it's true, marching soldiers for him, he could feel the energy there. He could feel the relentlessness there. And he wanted to apply that in a general way to human energy. Many people may know that uh, Nietzsche's philosophy apparently was taken up favorably by the Nazi regime, mostly due to the uh, propaganda efforts of Nietzsche's sister, uh, Elizabeth, I believe was her name, uh, because she had inclinations toward the Nazi party. I understand most people uh, today would think that Nietzsche himself, had he been alive at the time, would have been horrified by that use of his philosophy, but uh, it's one of the things we remember. Yes, there's no question he was totally against, first first of all, he's totally against anti-Semitism. And his sister promoted anti-Semitism. And that's why she used his ideas after he became insane and could no longer speak for himself, to promote that and became a friend of Hitler. That would not have been Nietzsche. Nietzsche would not have been a friend of Hitler. He despised anti-Semitism, and he really looked down on in, on the Germans very as a culture very much, and that's the opposite of Hitler. Um, and he believed that anti-Semitism was a very petty uh, thing, N- nothing to be envied or promoted in any way. Well, one of his uh, greatest books, of course, is Also Sprach Zarathustra, or Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It seems as if uh, in his opposition to Christian morality, he wanted to reach back to uh, pre-Christian forms of spirituality, and he, he found that in his readings of uh, Zarathustra. Yes, pre-Christian would be uh, an advance for, for, for Nietzsche because Christianity, for him, really corrupted society and corrupted morality and corrupted the human spirit. So to go beyond before that to a time when there was more respect for the human spirit would inspire him. But he was more, although he used that as a starting point, uh, he was really looking always to the future. And it's a strange thing that that's the case, because he was against evolutionism in the sense of Darwinism, but he definitely has a kind of evolutionary sense in, in application to the human race as a whole. 
that it's moving towards something great. And those who promote that, those like he himself saw himself as promoting the future, it wasn't there yet. And he wasn't part of that yet. And you can see a sort of regret that it was still in the future, still to come to this realization of human possibility. So he had some notions of evolution that were built into his thinking, but he didn't, he wasn't, as far as I'm concerned, able to integrate that idea of evolution into his philosophy, unlike someone that I talk about in my book, Charles Saunders Peirce, who basically had a philosophy based on evolution. Uh, and I can say more about that later on if you'd like me to do, uh, because I think that this is a both a strength of Nietzsche, Nietzsche, that he saw the future as an evolutionary thing, and also he really couldn't explain it in terms of his philosophy, in terms of his metaphysics, let's say. For the benefit of our viewers, that we did do a previous interview on the philosophy of Charles Sanders Pierce, who was also a big influence on on your thinking, a, a good friend of William James. Uh, so yes, I think it would be very beneficial uh, to uh, hear your thoughts comparing the two. Well, you see, as I mentioned, Nietzsche is totally about depth and trying to penetrate depth to move down without fear, to explore and to find out things, because you're always going to be surprised, and you're never going to be prepared for it, so you're going to feel shivers go up and down your spine, and sometimes you're going to feel dread and fear. But that's not basically because there's anything bad about depth. It's just that it's so unknown and can feel so strange to us that we don't know what to make of it, and it's almost like we'd rather turn the other way and <laughs> run. Uh, but he didn't, and he, he, this is not what he wanted us to do, or anyone to do. But he saw this evolution of the, of the Superman as, as coming out of human striving. And he believed that the Superman would be able to use his tremendous power without any restriction of good and evil, without any notions of morality being imposed upon him, or I should say him or her, although he would not have spoken of it that way. Um, he, he saw that as something desirable, that is, that the future where you have this freedom of this, this outmoded morality would be extremely creative, so he trusted it. He trusted the future, that it was going to be just fine, that when the Superman developed, or the Supermen, or these free spirits, when they developed, that it wasn't going to be bad at all. It was going to be for the benefit of all. But we have to be ready to build for the future, and we have to be ready to say, we're not going to see it. And we have to have the faith in the future. So he had that. But what he didn't have was a notion of, if you have evolution, but you don't have any kind of God, because God is dead as far as nature was concerned, you don't have any top-down morality, uh, you don't have any good ideal towards which things are moving because of some divine 
um, imperatives, nothing like that. How can you have an evolution that moves forward and causes things to grow and become more and more developed, more and more uh, fully what they might be? Uh, there has to be some way to account for that, and he really couldn't account for that. Now, Charles Saunders Peirce did. He called the the way of ever of understanding evolutionary how to understand evolutionary development in terms of evolutionary love. Evolutionary love is the desire that whatever is loved, the desire is that it become fully developed. So if all the potentials that it can develop do develop, given the circumstances of its existence. And you feel this kind of evolutionary love towards everything in existence, not just other people, not just living things, but everything, that you want everything to grow and everything to become what it can be. And we experience this love. I believe actually children experience this love uh, very much. But we experience this love instinctually. We know what that feels like. Yeah, I want it. I, I want everything to be good. I want everything to become what it can be. I want everything to become as beautiful and developed as it can. But the reason we do is because the love of human beings is a participatory, participatory love based on evolutionary love which is embedded in the cosmos itself as a metaphysical principle. It's there. And we... When we experience it, we're partaking in that, in that greater evolutionary love, which allows the cosmos as a whole to evolve and become what it can be to the, to the greatest extent that it can. Now, I have taken this a little further than Peirce did, because I talk about evolutionary love as an enabling condition for this world coming into being and growing in an evolutionary way. Enabling conditions, something that was there at the moment of its birth or coming into existence. There was no moment. But at the, at the very foundation of the production of this world, it, that evolutionary love was there as a condition that made the world possible to occur and to continue to grow and develop to what is, we don't know what, because there is no God making this happen. There is nothing, a superior intelligence that has a plan, nothing like that. The evolution comes from within nature itself. The, the goals are set as it goes along. Each moment creates a new goal for individuals, but also for the cosmos as a whole and then moves on to the next moment, and that creates a new moment of motion or movement forward in evolution. So this is Peirce's idea with a little bit added by me. And if you take that, if Nietzsche had some sense of that, he might have, well, in my opinion, he may not have gone insane. I actually believe it was because he couldn't he couldn't contain and make comfortable his 
evolutionary idea of the superman and the development of the creative free spirits in the future, it, it, it didn't have anything to make sense of it. And I believe that this is something that he knew and that this is why he actually developed insanity in the, in the end of his life. In other words, what you're saying is he, he was driven insane by his own philosophy. He was. He was driven insane by the philosophy because of the power of his philosophy, but it didn't have certain um, a certain framework which could make it a feel um, make sense of it all, make it all fit together. And because of that, because he took it so seriously and he believed his philosophy completely, um, he towards the end of his life, as he was growing, becoming insane in the last year of his life. He saw himself as a kind of godlike individual, and that's sort of the the, the um, you might say the logical outcome of his philosophy as he had been developing it, because there was nothing to constrain him. Psychotherapists would refer to that as ego inflation. Is that what you're thinking? If you feel that you and the whole human race in its best development is becoming this com very powerful creative force, but there's no um, guidance about how to use that creativity, then you can imagine any sort of outcome and any sort of power, and you can become inflated by that. I think the notion of um, the inflated ego psychologically has an analogy to that, yes. Now, I am under the impression that... Uh, Nietzsche was not successful in love. Uh, he had a failed romantic affair with Lou Salome, who later became a, a, a well-known uh, Freudian analyst and, and, and was also thought of as a muse. After uh, she broke up with uh, Nietzsche, I believe she had another affair with uh, Rilke, the, the great German poet, and, and was a, a, a big inspiration to Rilke. Uh, but Nietzsche, it seemed, became cynical about love. Yes, there's a wonderful movie about Lou Salomon and Nietzsche, and a common friend they had, a man, and how they met and what happened in their life. It's a wonderful film that came out about a year ago, two years ago. Um, and it's about Lou Salomon particularly. Uh, but he was not, he was not successful in his love life. He wanted to marry her, but a lot of people wanted to marry her, and she didn't want to marry anyone. <laughs> uh, but he had a few people that, a few women that he had some interest in, but they didn't really go very far. Uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, heterosexual. I don't think there's any question about that, but he was not very, I, th I think he would have been very difficult for women. To feel comfortable with. He was not that sophisticated, you might say, as a man. And he couldn't create a kind of uh, feeling of strength that I think women, most women, need to feel in a man uh, to have a really successful relationship. So he. I guess you would say he was unhappy in that way, but he, he he didn't talk a lot about that. I mean, he acknowledged that, but he didn't talk a lot about that. 
I seem to recall one passage in which he's comparing the the warlike instinct with the pacifistic instinct for universal love, and I, I believe uh, he he implied that. Uh, uh, the human race has benefited much more through war and conflict than it ever has through universal love. Yes, because he saw universal love as the Christian love, the love of humiliation, the love of, of humility and uh, playing down the power of the human na- of, of human nature and nature in general. So he didn't see that as having a very good effect on the race at all. And, and it's the power of war is more attractive from that point of view because it can get something done. But the other simply corrupts human beings and makes them feel more and more helpless. So obviously when Peirce and you uh, write about evolutionary love, you're looking at uh, the concept of universal love in a very different light. Yes, that's right. And I have to add one more person there, and that's um, Robert Corrington, who has a philosophy called ecstatic naturalism, which has been helpful for me in understanding this notion of of evolutionary love as an enabling principle for the production of the world or the cosmos that we live in. He has that little extra touch for me that makes it all hang together pretty well. And ironically, if, if I understand Nietzsche a, a little bit, it's that he thought the, the Superman somehow was a, a very natural person in touch with their own nature. Yes, they would be. And that nature would be completely free. Uh, it would be all the natural instincts and feelings, but with no restraints, artificial restraints being put on the individual's from from the outside or from the top down. Another idea of Nietzsche's that uh, I think has gotten into the popular imagination is his theory of eternal recurrence. Yes, it has gotten into the popular imagination. That is one of my um, one of my enigmas. I, I feel I don't really understand what he was doing there. I, I mean, I see what he says about it, and I have seen what other people have commented on about it. I, but I don't see what this was supposed to accomplish. He felt this is a very important part of his philosophy, the eternal return, that everything will eventually happen again. And so that, uh, that if you understand that, this affects how you live your life now. Now, that has a certain moral or allegorical, you might say, value from that point of view, but I don't know what it accomplishes in terms of an actual understanding of the basic nature of reality. That's that's my puzzle about it. You know, one of uh, the philosophers, uh, probably very little known in the history of philosophy, but in esoteric thought, very important, is, is Rudolf Steiner, who... Uh, was a student of Nietzsche in the sense that he was hired by Nietzsche's sister Elizabeth to to uh, go through the archives and publish some of Nietzsche's material. And he wrote a book about Nietzsche called uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Fighter for Freedom. You know, I don't know that book. It's an interesting book, and he's making much the same point that, that you're making, that what Nietzsche was all about was the freedom of the individual, ultimately. Uh, I know about Steiner, 
and I know he developed his own philosophy. I didn't know of his close involvement with Elizabeth uh, Nietzsche's sister. Yeah, he he met Nietzsche actually, but it was at a time late in life when Nietzsche, when you say he went insane, my understanding is he became what we would call a catatonic schizophrenic. He he he, he was motionless. He was catatonic. He didn't speak even. First, he was in. He would be in these hyperstates, and he would dance and scream and do things completely. Well, everyone around him would say insane. <laughs> um, but eventually he went into this very, very quiet with nothing coming from him at all for years. And he was looked after, first of all, by his mother and then by his sister Elizabeth. But she was certainly didn't... She was much more into it for her own self than for him, I would say. Well, Steiner, as a young scholar, was hired by Elizabeth to uh, do some of the archival work on, on Nietzsche's Writings. I also happen to read uh, Steiner's obituary uh, of Nietzsche when, when Nietzsche died. So he he wrote this book, uh, you know, Nietzsche: Fighter for Freedom, praising that aspect of Nietzsche's work. But uh, in this obituary, he basically said, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a lengthy obituary. Uh, but it concluded with the idea that many people today think that Nietzsche was a great philosopher, but they're wrong. That uh, that Nietzsche will be remembered mostly as a person who projected, in, in spite of great moments in his philosophy, a person who projected his own illness out onto the world. Couldn't disagree more. <laughs> I think that his philosophy was great. It had nothing to do with illness at all. It had to do with a tremendously sharp, wonderful intellect that saw through the hypocrisies of the human community. I think that the it's easy to think because he became so... You know, what is, what is difficult about the history there at the end of his life is that he... He started becoming insane in 1888, and by, 18, by the early 1889, he was gone. He was completely off and no longer functioning at all. It happened so quickly. And <clears throat> it is precisely in the 1880s that his greatest works were produced. And some of them have this sort of... Um, fantastic uh, vision of, of the power, the creative power of the human being in them, and fantastic, um, merciless criticism of those who don't recognize it, and particularly towards the end of his life, it then became those who did not recognize him and his creative power. But uh, Beyond Good and Evil is one of his later books, it is an incredible book. It's a short book. I recommend anyone who wants to get into Nietzsche to start there because you see the power of his writing and of his thinking. Um, so it's, he is an enigma from many points of view. I, so in, in the last part of my book, I brought him into my own circle, you might say, um, and had, a, had an, uh, sort of an experience with him of descending into the depths of a well. And uh, I believe, I say in that part of the book that I believe that he went insane because of 
his um, inability to completely digest his philosophy. Not that it was wrong, but he didn't have the ability to completely make it a whole. And 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 um, that that was the reason for his insanity. Unlike there are many other theories about his insanity, including that he was syphilitic and that that was a you know a late form of syphilis in him. I don't believe that. That's just a theory. It's not well. It's not well documented. It doesn't. His symptoms don't completely agree with what you would expect from that. So he can he can remain an enigma. I like that. I don't. I don't think we should understand any person completely. In matter of fact, we don't. We don't. <laughs> That's for sure. In fact, it was my friend Deborah Hayden who wrote a book called The Pox about syphilis, in in which she has a chapter on Nietzsche. And uh, yes, she she has many examples of people who uh, she believes, uh, under the influence of syphilis, produce great creative works. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, that may be. I think in his case, it wouldn't be because of the syphilis. <laughs> it would be despite the, the syphilis and, and the fact if there was any contribution of syphilis to his insanity, it was, uh, it was uh, not the major reason for his insanity, in my opinion. Anyway, in, in my experience with him, in the last part of my book, he's, he's no longer insane because He's gone through that, uh, but he's still he's still descending into the depth. That, that's a search that never ends. That's a uh, uh, a journey of discovery. Thank God it never ends because it's so interesting. Well, we've just done a, uh, an interview recently on your uh, work on hypnagogia and your journey with Nietzsche down into the well and how uh, I, I know you quoted a wonderful poem of, of Nietzsche's uh, in that regard. Yes, I, I think I can recite it. It's mm -hmm. short, short enough that I've committed it to memory. <laughs> um, he said the Nietzsche, Nietzsche's poem goes like this. Where you're standing, dig, dig out, down below's the well. Let those who walk in darkness shout, down below there's hell. And that says a lot about Nietzsche. He believed in depth. He believed no matter where you are, you can go into your depth and understand more and more about the depth of human experience. No matter where you're standing, start digging right there. And those who think that they're going to break out, break through into some hell-like, terrible, evil thing, that's, that's nonsense. That is really beautifully put. Uh, one, one other note I might mention, uh, one of our frequent guests on New Thinking Aloud is the philosopher Jason Reza Giorgiani, and in his uh, masterpiece, Prometheus and Atlas, he makes uh, the claim that the work of William James, uh, in terms of his interest in psychical research and the nature of consciousness itself, uh, I know J William James came a little before the depth psychologists like Jung and, and Freud, but uh, he felt that William James was really in alignment with and building upon Nietzsche's thought. Well, you know, if he was, I've, I've looked 
for any actual direct connection between William James and Nietzsche. I haven't found any. I haven't found any connection also with, with Peirce. They were contemporaries. They all lived at the same time. And they were all trying to understand human nature and the human spirit at the same time. But I don't think there was any cro- actual crossing of paths. Yeah, I don't think so either, uh, Adam, and I, I don't think that Jason Giorgiani is making that claim, but I, I think he was more referring to the idea of being in the same spirit. What was in the air? Mm-hmm. What was in the air? That's that's very true. Yes, it was going on in many places, and William James, of course, and, and Peirce were very close. They were they were good friends, and James... Uh, tried to thought, thought the world first in terms of being one of the greatest philosophers ever. Well, Adam Crabtree, this has been a delightful excursion in, into the life of, uh, if he wasn't the greatest philosopher who ever lived, he is among the greats, for sure. Uh, I think uh, there's little doubt that if, if you had to name a handful of great philosophers, Nietzsche would be in, included. So, uh, I am very happy to share your insights uh, about him with our readers and, I'd, uh, and with our viewers. And I'd like to encourage our viewers to also read your your book, The Land of Hypnagogia, in which you engage in a uh, delightful uh, excursion yourself into the well with Nietzsche. It's a it's a wonderful section, uh, part two of of your book. So. Uh, I've I've recommended it in the past. I'll recommend it again. I appreciate the opportunity, Jeffrey. Adam, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.